Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. To the Money Answer Show, this is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Danielle DiMartino Booth. Uh, She has written a book called Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Fed Reserve is bad for America. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, Danielle. It's great to be here today. Just let's give us a bit of your background. You had a whole interesting background as a journalist on Wall Street at the Fed. Just kind of give us a brief, uh, you know, recollection of what what you did to get to where you are now. Well, um, I, I, after getting my MBA in finance, I went off to Wall Street, uh, where I had a great, wonderful career at a firm called Donaldson Lufkin and Jenrette. That is not here with us anymore, but it was very entrepreneurial, a great place to work. I got my second master's in journalism while I lived in New York and while I worked full time. And after 9-11, my perspective on life changed. So I retired very young, left Wall Street and became a journalist, which is where the Federal Reserve, by way of Richard Fisher, who was head of the Dallas Federal Reserve, found me. And I became an advisor to him for the better part of the decade throughout the financial crisis. I followed him in and followed him right back out of the Fed after which time I, I wrote a book uh, that, that you've got in your hand right now. So what was the need for this book after you left the Fed, having the knowledge you did of what, what went on inside the Fed? Well, when I went into the Fed, I, I, I wasn't exactly bowled over um, uh, going into the Fed in the first place. I'd been an outspoken critic of Alan Greenspan because I had felt that he had allowed the, uh, the housing bubble to inflate to too great of an extent and that it was going to take down quite a few Americans when it burst, uh, I wasn't too far off the mark, and that was in 2006. And clearly, the, the, the market was rolling over at that point. What I found when I first entered the Fed, though, was that rather than um, a, a lot of alarm bells going off, there was this distinct calmness inside the institution, which I, I found to be uh, very troubling. And it never really did seem to get uh, into a DEFCON 1 state, even in the heat of the financial crisis, which again, um, th- these things really came to bother me, because I've always uh, I've always globbed on to Jim Grant saying that the Fed is both both arsonist and fireman. In other words, they create the problem that that they then resolve. Uh, but I don't think that there was that much of a recognition inside the Fed that they were the they were the root of the problem to begin with. So we're in a key moment right now. President Trump is about to appoint a new Fed chair, and I think he's got four of the seven FOMC. Uh, chairs that he can appoint as well. Uh, is it possible for him to appoint people that you think could get things back on the right track the way you think the Fed should be run? Well, possible is a very big word. It's full of possibilities. Um, yes, I do think that he has got that. Uh, it sounds like he's going to to take the middle road. Uh, as of this morning's news releases, uh, all the chatters about uh, Jay Powell, who has been on the Federal Reserve Board for some time, He's already been vetted by and confirmed by the Senate, so there shouldn't be too much of an uphill battle there, plus the fact that he's a Republican. Uh, but it's, it seems like he's going to take the very easy road, as opposed to taking somebody from the West Coast, uh, uh, Stanford's John Taylor, who would have been a bigger unknown for the markets, and as opposed to the, the safest, easiest path, which would have been to keep Janet Yellen at her post. Not that I think she wanted to stay. So if you were Trump right now, who of those three would you appoint? Uh, I've heard suggestions that he appoint Jay Powell and John Taylor together and um, vice chair chair at the same time. I would wholly advocate for him doing that 
because in addition to Randy Quarles, who the Senate has already confirmed, you would instantly overnight have a a more more uh, diversification on the Fed, intellectually speaking, than you've had in generations, just with the, with those three individuals. So some people are saying John Taylor, who has was the so-called Taylor Rule, kind of automates the Fed and puts it without people making decisions. And if certain numbers reach certain criteria, interest rates should be here. Is that a better way to do things as, as, instead of having all this opinion of how things should be run? Well, anything is going to be the way it's, it's been done for years, which is throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing if it sticks. Um, that, that's not the way to make monetary policy. And I think that John Taylor himself would tell you that monetary policy should probably not be made in a completely automated fashion, adhering to one strict rule or guideline. But what I think the Taylor rule does afford us is something philosophically, which is there needs to be much more discipline put into the process of setting interest rates in this country. And I think that that it is that element of discipline that Taylor would bring to the institution. That would, that's why he was my he's my odds-on favorite. So how do you think Wall Street would react to getting a Taylor nomination for a Fed chief? I don't think Wall Street would appreciate it very much. I think it would be equivalent to a big teaspoon of castor oil. Um, <laughs> I really don't think, and, and, and we've seen something of that kind of reaction in the markets uh, these past few trading sessions, though it's very difficult to try and decipher whether it comes down to one man or anxiety or fiscal policy or you name it. Um, but I think that they would perceive monetary policy to be on a tighter path than what it would be under a Jay Powell or a Janet Yellen or more of the status quo that we've seen since Alan Greenspan took office over 30 years ago. So does Wall Street need a teaspoon of castor oil? I think if you're asking me if Wall Street is, 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 is a petulant child, absolutely. They need to be they need to be left in the supermarket kicking and screaming like a two year old having a tantrum and the mother needs to walk away. But that's what Wall Street needs. That, that's because they but again, they've been indoctrinated to behave this way. This is how they've been taught to behave, starting with 1987, October the 20th, 1987, when Greenspan brought out, you know, we will we will backstop the financial system and, and allow trading desks after that point. Uh, to start front-running the Fed, he would let fixed-income trading desks know prior to Fed liquidity injections. So, I, I I I came off of Wall Street. I can I can say that Wall Street is definitely complicit. But you have to teach a child bad behavior before they end up being a kid who needs reform school. So let's take it from your point of view. Let's say that the world were run the way you'd want it to run. Interest rates would be much higher. The Fed would not have been as a combinator for as long. I mean, some would say that would have caused a depression we could never get out of. Look, what we had in 2009, 2010 was a liquidity freeze. And I mean a liquidity deep freeze. A liquidity freeze does not, however, mean that interest rates needed to go to the zero bound. That was an academics model gone wild. We could have taken interest rates to say 2%, which would have done a lot more for our money market fund industry, by the way, and our banking system um, and our savers and our retirees while still implementing the liquidity injections that came from the New York Fed that addressed problems in specific markets. That was the problem 
treating the patient with zero interest rates was the wrong medicine and created many unintended consequences that the Fed is still trying to live down today. Just imagine had they started tightening even as late as they have been to the tightening process if the starting point had been 2% and not the zero bound. So some are saying that savers are being discriminated against tremendously here. They're putting their money in CDs and savings accounts and money market funds pretty much getting zero, and it seems to going to be that way for a long time. Why is there not a constituency in behalf of savers at the Fed? Well, that was my that was the point that I just made. That that that, that there were very few of us. I, I was I was among them. Richard Fisher was among them, who were saying at the time, "You do not need to go to the zero bound. You're going to." To, to, to put a stake in the heart of savers in this country, you're going to really hurt the pension fund system. You're going to hurt life insurance companies. You're going to hurt the entire baby boom generation. They're going to have to take undue risks. There were people arguing against that, and there are still people who are arguing against that, and I hope that Trump fills the vacancies and others who are at the Fed also want to leave. I hope he takes this opportunity and puts more and more rational individuals onto the Fed, what most people don't understand, and I'll, 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 I'll stop with this point, is that the Fed policymakers get pensions for life. So they don't actually have to be on the receiving end of their, their zero interest rate policy. Even after they retire, they still don't have to take their own medicine. So why is it that the Fed always seems to, to uh, want to please borrowers more than savers? Well, because they're of the misguided notion that there's something called a wealth effect. And that if they can if they can convince companies to borrow more and spend more, that it will somehow result in greater investment in plant and equipment and growing payrolls. Well, I'm sorry, but we've learned that that is not the case through the first jobless recovery, the second jobless recovery, and then the anemic recovery that we've got today, which has been accompanied by jobs, but certainly not well-paying jobs, and and certainly not a lot of long-term investment in plant and equipment innovation, etc. It's the wealth effect. It is it has caused a ton of misguided policy at the Fed, and that's a shame. So that's on the monetary side. Right now, the exact same argument is being used on the fiscal side and saying if you give a big tax cut to corporations, they're going to hire more people and wages are going to rise an average of $4,000 per person. Does that make any sense to you? You know, we can hope. The the one thing that, that fiscal policy can do differently than monetary policy is monetary policy makes borrowing cheap. Hopefully, if fiscal policy is created correctly, then there, you don't get a benefit from borrowing, you get a benefit from investing, hopefully. But things like saying that there's gonna be four trillion or two trillion, or there's all these big numbers that politicians throw around, all of this money brought back on shore, that's, uh, that's a red herring. I, it's, I run from it when I hear it, because if companies have cash in hand, they tend to do naughty things with it, not good. Like what naughty things do they do with it? They buy back their shares. They reduce so, their share count. They increase the size of their bonuses. Some of them even have an extra jet travel with them. Uh-huh. So that they're, they're not going to be, I mean, the image right now is that they're going to use that money to raise wages of their workers and build new plant and equipment and make the economy grow. That's what's being used to sell the tax bill. You don't think that's real? I think that you can incentivize specifically investing in the company in the form of, say, uh, 
a quickened pace of depreciation if you invest in, in certain things. I mean, again, you have to be very specific with the tax cuts in order to incentivize investment as opposed to just incentivizing companies from doing things like buying back their share and or merging with other companies that ends up with reduced headcount net net once you get the two companies together. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Danielle DiMartino Booth. Uh, her current company. It's Money Strong, and you can money find strong. it at uh, DiMartinoBooth.com. Yes, Money Strong. Money strong. And, and her website is DiMartinoBooth.com. Her book is called Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Fed Reserve is bad for America. We'll be back after this. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Danielle DiMartino Booth. She's written a book called Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. You can find out more about her at her website, which is DiMartinoBooth.com. Welcome back to the show, Danielle. Thank you so much. Great to be here again. A little bit about Money Strong and, and what kind of work you do at the firm you founded now. Well, in my capacity as advisor to Richard Fisher, what I did for him was produce what we called a markets briefing ahead of every Federal Open Market Committee meeting. And so I so enjoyed what I did, basically following every aspect of the financial markets, every market within it, private equity, public equity, the commodities market, fixed income equities, uh, and looking for where sources of risk might or might, might not be bubbling up. I truly enjoyed what I did for him. So I've basically uh, taken it uh, into an IPO situation. Now I do that for the public where I've produced a weekly newsletter for over two years without skipping a beat. And I'm a, also a full-time Bloomberg columnist and speak on speak with wonderful people like you and go on, on TV every time there's a Fed statement release, et cetera. So um, lots and lots of things uh, happening at Money Strong. 
So what do you learn in listening to the market so carefully? Does the market speak to you and give you a good sense of what's going to happen, what risks are bubbling up uh, long before most people understand it? Well, I think that markets have to be uh, parsed. And it's not always kind of the headline economic data, if you will, that tell us what we need to know about what's to come. Uh, rather, it's, it's kind of in the weeds type. But, well, first of all, yield curves never lie. So that is my absolute number one uh, rule that I I constantly monitor the 210 spread. Uh, a few weeks ago, we actually breached the 75 basis point in between the two-year treasury and 10-year treasury mark. Um, and, and that was the lowest in the past decade. And again, it, it started to flash that the economy was going to slow, and then it gapped back out. But I follow things like supplier deliveries, the reason that companies are laying people off. I, I like to look at why people are confident as opposed to um, the headline figure. I, I like to see how many people think that jobs are going to be plentiful 12 months out. It's, it's, to me, it's all about the weeds and not necessarily just following what a lot of the sell-side macroeconomists follow. And what are you finding in the weeds today? What, what is your outlook for the economy based on the weeds you've been analyzing? Well, I think things look really good and they look really bad. We have a tremendously bifurcated household economy right now. We have, I mean, to say it's the haves and the have-nots is uh, it's really insulting to the have-nots. And to look at averages right now is, is truly misleading. Deutsche Bank has done some wonderful research over the past few weeks that shows that if you look at the savings rate, if you look at the saving rate in the aggregate, it looks like we're fine. But all that is doing is weighing the people who have been beneficiaries of Fed policy, investors, risk takers, speculators. But it certainly doesn't measure the other side of the economy. If you, if you can think of it and envision it as being something of a barbell, because you're seeing Citigroup and Bank of America and J.P. Morgan Chase, you're seeing their credit card loss provisions go up at a faster pace than they had anticipated. You say, wait a minute, if households are in such good shape, why are they defaulting on their credit card debt? That makes no sense at all. Unless what you have is a segment of the population, well over 50%, who really haven't seen their paychecks grow since the Great Recession hit. But by the same token, they've seen the cost of, of college, tuition, education, child care, rents have gone through the roof, health care. You've seen costs for all of these necessities rise tremendously in the face of stagnant incomes. So how is that income inequality uh, getting wider? How is that exacerbated by the super easy money supply, uh, monetary policy by the Fed for so many years? That's just, that's just the low-hanging fruit answer of all time. Uh, question of all time, excuse me. Uh, again, I'll go back to the, the fallacy of the wealth effect. The, the, ben Bernanke said it himself in public. You know, if we can just get the stock market up, then we can get people uh, borrowing and spending again because they'll be more confident. Well, that didn't happen because, by the way, only 50% of Americans or so own stocks and certainly only 10 to 20% of them own enough stocks to where it makes an actual difference to where it can move the needle in terms of what they consume. For the rest of Americans, that's just, that's just wishful thinking because they work paycheck to paycheck. And again, easy monetary policy encouraged private equity firms to swarm into the sand states initially in, in, into the Phoenix market, the Las Vegas market, the Inwood um, um, out, out, out in California, uh, as well as 
um, as Florida. And then there was so much more easy money laying around that the Blackstones of the world and other private equity companies started moving into secondary markets. They, they blasted a trail through Texas, buying up all of the homes that middle income baby, baby boomers children, millennials might have purchased, might have purchased had the private equity guys not come in and bought them with, with absolute no care for what the price was, um, pushing not just single family rental rates, but home prices through the roof. Again, one massive, major, unintended, maybe intended consequence of low, easy money policy. Again, too low for too long. And by the way, housing is the most, it's a third of your average household's budget. So it really counts that it takes up that big of a share. So we've had the Fed raise rates twice so far this year. Chances are they're going to raise them again in uh, December. So does that make you happy that the Fed's so-called normalizing or they're doing it too slowly? I would have preferred had we been doing it when we were talking about the taper and there were plenty of us inside the Fed at the time when the, the, the bond market years ago through what they called a taper tantrum, there were plenty of us who were saying, you know what, we shouldn't be dithering about a taper. Now the market is telling us that, that the labor market is gaining momentum and that we should be raising rates now and, and we shouldn't be peeling off the Band-Aid as slowly as humanly possible, $10 billion a month at a time, uh, and that we should go quickly about uh, the, the, the normalizing process. Now we've seen it occur at a painstakingly slow rate, and here we are about to hit a whole 1.5% in December. So it, it, it is a day late and a dollar short. I think the Fed's got two maybe three best-case scenario interest rate hikes before they completely invert the yield curve. So this is happening around the world as well. I mean, in Europe, they're still doing quantitative easing. They, they might have cut back on it a little bit, but they've got negative interest rates in large parts of Europe. Japan has a huge uh, asset buying. They'll buy anything in sight. China's stimulating their economy. So around the world, there's still a lot of easy money and accommodative policy. Is, is that going to... What's the ultimate impact of, of all that easy money for such a long period of time? Well, clearly we've seen kind of aberrations, if you will. You have uh, you have European junk bonds that are trading at lower yields um, than, uh, than U.S. treasuries of the same maturity. I mean, you had um, Moldova borrow money a few days ago. You had China issue bonds for the first time, and it was 11 times oversubscribed. You, you're seeing this tremendous rush of liquidity uh, persist via the central banks and you're seeing malinvestment. Now, if Mario Draghi is serious, and I, I, I thought I was going to see elephant tears last week at, at the press conference, he was trying to, to couch the taper that the European Central Bank is going to embark upon at the beginning of next year in so much dovishness, I thought he was going to start crying on national TV. <laughs> but, um, but if he truly pushes through with that taper, and the Federal Reserve continues to increase the amount of balance sheet shrinkage as its announced schedule suggests, then you could have upwards of $800 billion of liquidity by the end of 2018 that is no longer going to be there in terms of liquidity. And that could be serious for financial markets if both central banks truly carry through with what their stated plans are today. So this is the the crack that Wall Street loves, and and they, they always talk about. I guess as McKesney Martin said, 
don't their job is to take the punch bowl away from the party when it gets going. That's what they're doing. You're saying now is they're taking the punch bowl away while the party's really rolling here. Well, the party. <laughs> I'm so sorry, but this is one heck of a party. I, I, <laughs> I giggle when I hear. Maybe it's because I'm in New York as often as I am. I travel to New York with a great bit of frequency. I'll be there there again Wednesday. But every time I I see on Bubble Vision that this is the most hated rally of all time, I say to myself, hated by whom? Because people on Wall Street seem to be pretty darn happy. And they act as if the party's been going on for a very, very, very long time, which it has. We've set more records than we have in the history of the U.S. markets. If you're looking at consecutive number of days, weeks, months, rallying, um, there there was some fantastic data released about that last week. And... You know, we ended the week with the VIX dropping below 10 again. I mean, if the Fed's removing the punch bowl now, they're removing it kind of in the middle of the party. There's still going to be a ton of people with hangovers. Mm-hmm. So some would say that when you have this accommodative policy for this long, that that's going to ultimately cause inflation. This is what happened in the late 70s, for example. Are you concerned that there is a lot of latent inflation that will be unleashed by everything that's happening now? Well, the problem with that dynamic is you didn't have a million and a half people entering the workforce in the 70s creating their own deflationary impetus plus technological change that was fairly historic and monumental creating its own form of deflation and the only thing that that's come up against is in 2007 there was 150 trillion dollars of debt in the aggregate worldwide today there is 220 trillion dollars of debt in in the credit markets Every trillion dollars has is debt that has to be serviced in some way, shape, or form. And the more money that you have to spend servicing the debt, the fewer you have left over in balance to spend on other things, which also creates its own deflationary impetus. The only thing I would couch that in is saying that works, and that would be the inexplicable deflation. I've just put it into three different buckets to explain it. That dynamic works as long as there is sufficient demand for U.S. Treasuries and we retain reserve currency status. And as long as that's the case, we're fine. But if the Chinese blow through their $3.1 trillion in reserves, and if they manage to change the way that petroleum is traded worldwide away from the dollar and we're moving in that direction, then we could have some serious problems at our Treasury auctions in the years to come. And that's where you get inflation that the Fed cannot handle. So what would happen if the dollar were no longer the reserve currency? Would there be a basket of currencies or what would be, we're not going to go back to the gold standard, what would be a potential new reserve currency if the dollar isn't it anymore? Well, I don't think that that countries per se decide to play along nicely and jump in a basket. It's just not how it happened. But then I'm a historian by nature. The last time we had a baton handoff involved World War II and and the decline of British pound sterling. And that's my greatest concern. Again, if the Chinese are saying that we understand that we have a closed financial system, therefore, if you want to trade for oil in yuan, we'll we'll give it back to you in gold. We got problems there because that's a real potential offset. In fact, it's what I'm writing about in my newsletter this week. That's a real potential offset and a very attractive alternative to a lot of countries that don't particularly like us in, oh, I don't know, let's say Russia and basically all the Middle East. Uh-huh. <laughs> Very good. Okay, we're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. Uh, my guest this hour is Danielle DiMartino Booth. Uh, her book is called Fed Up, An Insider's Take on Why the Federal Reserve is Bad for America. 
Her website is demartinobooth.com. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Danielle DiMartino Booth. Her new book is called Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Fed Reserve is bad for America. Her company is called Money Strong, and her website is demartinobooth.com. Welcome back to the show, Danielle. Thanks so much. So the Fed, they always talk about how their balance sheet is uh, data dependent, and, and they're making decisions depending on what the data uh, shows. They don't have any specific thing in mind. Is that true, and is that the right way to be making Fed monetary policy? Well, it, you know, it, it's really interesting. Uh, they don't want to call quantitative tightening quantitative tightening. Um, I, I guess it just sounds too scary to, to call it like it is. Uh, but when it comes to letting the balance sheet roll off and allowing the maturing securities to not be replaced via reinvestment, the Fed has insisted that they are not going to be data dependent, that this is going to be like watching paint dry, that this will be on autopilot, and that regardless of what happens with the data flow, they're not going to stop shrinking the balance sheet I just, I, I really want to see the economy go into recession and see the Fed hold its ground on this. So they're saying we're data dependent when it comes to raising interest rates, but we're not data dependent when it comes to shrinking the balance sheet because it's not a form of tightening. I, I don't buy it. I just don't buy it. You cannot, you, you can't say we own one third of the mortgage market and stepping back in terms of being such a concentrated presence is not going to have an upward push on mortgage rates. It, it it's not realistic. So the Fed's balance sheet's now roughly four and a half trillion, give or take a few hundred billion here or there. Where do you think it should be? Where should the balance sheet be uh, if it was ideal today? You know, I, I think that the balance sheet should be something that that, that aligns with reserve requirements. Uh, you know, it, it was less than a trillion dollars when we started down this fantasy lane, and I'd like to see it go back to something a lot closer to one trillion dollars. 
I think that that's reasonable, especially given the fact that we have seen we have so many so many fewer banks today than we had. We, we've seen a shrinking uh, footprint in terms of the number of banks across the country, which is a real tragedy for a lot of smaller borrowers sprinkled throughout the country, as, as we've seen too big to fail banks just get bigger and bigger since the financial crisis. But I don't see any justification for keeping the balance sheet at two or two and a half trillion dollars, as some Fed policymakers have suggested. I think we can take it right back down to a trillion dollars and leave it at that. Do I think that that's going to happen? No. I think we're going to be in recession before that happens and that they'll end up some Yahoo's going to end up raising their hand and saying QE4. So how would the Fed deal with the next recession? What have they learned from the last one? And basically what they learned last one is flood the system with uh, reserves, increase the balance sheet by trillions of dollars, lower interest rates to 0%, and that'll get you out of the recession. Everything will be fine. So what have they learned that they'll use in the next recession? Well, they have learned nothing, which takes us back to what started this discussion. I hope we get some new people in there who actually read a few of the Fed papers and a few of the staff white papers that have said that the quantitative easing had absolutely no good effect on the real economy, which it didn't, which is why we've had basically 2% growth uh, the last two quarters notwithstanding. But we've basically had 1.92% growth for the better part of a decade. You know, you're obviously going to see a tremendous bump, and we're seeing it already from these hurricanes, um, but that is that is math. The underlying strength, I don't think, is in the 3% range. With all due deference to everybody who wants it to be, including myself, I want for the economy to get to a more accelerated pace of growth. So, I mean, we're talking about the monetary side, but on the fiscal side, President Trump is basically saying we can get even more than 3% growth, maybe 4% growth, by cutting taxes to corporations and individuals, and they'll either spend that money or invest it. That's all good for the economy. The, the uh, wealth effect will trickle trickle down to the average person, and we're going to be uh, we'll, we'll we won't have deficits anymore because we're going to have such incredible growth. What, what do you think of that argument? Look, the, the problem with these things is that the the underlying strength, the underlying infrastructure within our society, is not there. Look, Fed policy has hampered the ability of fiscal policy going forward because we've had a drought when it comes to capital expenditures for so long. And we've had a lot of nothing occur in the terms of our educational system. A lot of the things that, that we need in order to make America great again involve sacrifice and time that cannot be legislated quickly. You know, look at Germany as an example. It was never stigmatized. Vocational education was never stigmatized in Germany. And so their manufacturers have ridden upwards on a wave and their manufacturing sector remains a power to be reckoned with on the world stage. We, on the other hand, have discouraged vocational training. And, you know, you, you, you don't talk about kids going to shop anymore. And the average electrician in this country is 59 or 60 years old. And these things are problematic, but they're not resolved easily. We need to have a rebirth of innovation, and it's not going to be as simple as tax. We need lower taxes, but it's not going to be as simple as just lowering taxes. You have to get down to the classroom, and you have to get down to an individual small business level in order for innovation to take hold. Someone's saying there's a huge kind of skills gap. When the, the Jolts report about job openings is something like 6 million, something like that. So what could be done 
to get people trained for the jobs that exist. There's, there's literally millions of jobs that employers can't find people to meet those uh, criteria. Look, you know, I've seen some very rational headlines in, in recent months that say apprenticeship programs need to be widened um, and potentially taken out of the hands of the union so that we can train a lot of these young, capable want people, you know, people who want to work so we can train them more quickly and get them into some of these positions that are so desperately needed. Look right now in Florida, in in um, in Puerto Rico, on the West Coast where they had the, those devastating wildfires right here in, in Texas where I live in Houston. You know, the need for skilled workers is acute and these are really well-paying jobs. There, there, are, um, there are energy companies that are saying that they can't find enough good skilled workers. Uh, to be able to maintain efficiency and profitability in competing with the um, the Saudi Arabians and other Middle Eastern com- uh, countries in terms of extracting the oil out of the ground, the jobs are there for the taking, and these are not long-term programs. These are, you know, these are one or two-year programs that can get well-paying jobs created out there, but they've got to be properly incentivized and specifically incentivized. You don't just throw the money out there and hope. That companies will do right with it. That it that doesn't it doesn't work that way. We've become a country plagued with short term itis as opposed to long term visions. So you're saying to give incentives to create apprenticeship programs, for example, to get people into those areas where the jobs are, are going uh, begging, actually. Well, obviously, and 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 you know, let's just say that tomorrow we woke up and unicorns were flying over over our roofs. And pigs were flying right behind them, and life was good, and we were all singing Kumbaya nation to nation because the legislature had finally figured out that our infrastructure is crumbling, and and they passed legislation for the lowest hanging fruit. I ask you the question, would we have enough employees to put those shovels in the ground right now? Not not domestically, and we have to import people from Mexico, and that's politically kind of dicey these these days. That's that's Ted. That's toxic politically because there are so many people who are out of work but otherwise of working age. And but so who do not have the, the skills that, that, people, that we need in the economy. We've got precisely. this big imbalance between all these exactly. jobs that and all these people who don't have the skills for the jobs. But again, the, but, but to your word that you're using right now, they are skills, and skills can be learned. This is not, this is not an English literature dissertation, nor is this Calculus three, nor is this... Um, any other kind of esoteric learning that you need to go to school for eight years to do, you're talking about 18 months to two years here, and and right, you know, that that slides right into financial stability and financial independence. Is this something that was discussed at the Federal Reserve? This kind of jobs mismatch, the skills mismatch. Well, the, the skills mismatch is definitely a subject. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is is this something that was discussed? Yeah, uh, no. The skills mismatch at the Federal Reserve, yes. Um, the skills mismatch is something that came up, especially where I was in Dallas, because it was in the middle of the shale revolution. And so we were we were acutely aware here in my backyard that we didn't have enough warm bodies to fill the position. Um, but at the time, you know, I think for a time the skills mismatch was, was covered over, if you will, by the fact that there were so many um, immigrant workers in our construction force many of whom went home and have never come back. And so I think it was the Great Recession that laid bare the fact that we had not, we didn't have enough homegrown, home-trained skilled workers. So it's taken a little while, but yes, the subject was discussed inside the Fed, but 
you know, on, on a purely philosophical level, I don't think that it's the Fed's place to implement these types of programs. I'd be happier if the Congress took away the dual mandate from the Fed and reduced the Fed's role back to simply minimizing inflation. And I think inflation, the only, you know, one of, one of the few things I've ever agreed with Alan Greenspan on is that the ideal rate of inflation is zero. Well, we've had pretty much that for a while. I mean, that has been a little bit higher than that, but we've had officially low inflation for quite a while. So one could say that they were very successful at keeping inflation low. That's if they had an inflation metric that actually measured price pressures. So you're saying the CPI is not the right way to measure inflation? I'm saying ignoring asset price inflation certainly didn't work in 2004 through six. So could you have asset inflation as part of the, the correct way to, to measure inflation, the, the stock market and value of assets going up, real estate? Well, now that it would seem that especially Bill Dudley's New York Fed is intent on focusing on financial conditions and how easy they've been, lo and behold, a Federal Reserve has come up with an inflation metric. They just rolled it out a few weeks ago that incorporates not one, not two, but six different stock, uh, stock market measures into it. So yes, to answer your question, the Fed has finally come up with a new mousetrap. And what is that showing? What is that metric showing, including financial market conditions about inflation? It's showing 2.7%, which is well above the Fed's target, which suggests that the Fed is behind the curve. Interesting. Very good. Okay, we're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is um, Danielle DiMartino Booth. Her book is called Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. Uh, her website is demartinobooth.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Danielle DiMartino Booth. Her book is called Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Fed Reserve is bad for America. Her website is demartinobooth.com. Welcome back to the show, Danielle. So Thanks. Thank you again. 
Let's talk about the investment implications of this. So basically what you're saying is we've had the Fed much too loose for a long time, and this is true of the central banks around the world as well. Assets are wildly overinflated, I guess would be one way of putting it, both stocks and real estate. So how does this party come to an end? Is it a nice, gentle letdown, or is it not so gentle? And how should you be positioned as an investor to prepare for the end of the party? Well, you know, it's impossible to say because we've had in the past individual asset classes be overvalued, but it's been, well, I I don't know when the last time anybody could cite in history that you've had bubble wrap around all the asset classes. And that's really what we've got right now, because you're talking about commercial real estate, bonds and stocks that are overvalued. And, you know, my, my number one suggestion for people in terms of how they're positioned is to, you know, with all due deference to State Street and Vanguard, I don't trust the I don't trust the structure of indexing right now. I don't trust the structure of ETFs either. Uh, so I, I would be very remiss to be in automated type of investments that you have potentially a hard time getting out of if there's a sudden shock in the markets. Yeah, that's going against all orthodoxy today, which is to saying you shouldn't be picking individual stocks, just go in the indexes. You'll beat the actively managed funds with low fees and everything's going to come out just fine. What's wrong with that? Well, I find that to be very disingenuous. I mean, going into 1987, there were an overabundance of individuals in something called portfolio insurance because they all wanted to to make sure that they were in the right vehicle just in case something went wrong. Well, with that same theory, people are in indexing right now because it has perfect liquidity, instantaneous ability to exchange out of it, but that is, I, I cannot fathom how that would work in a falling market. I just, I can't. We know the size of the entrance for passive investing, for index investing. We know the size of the entrance is approximately infinity. We have no idea truly what the size of the exit is and what the impact of downward momentum is going to be on these weighted index funds. So what role do alternative assets like gold and silver, precious metals, and maybe some other alternative assets have to play in a portfolio where you're worried about uh, the big downer, I guess you might say. Well, first off, I'm no gold bug in that I I never will be. Uh, But what I will say is that if you look back at periods in history when we've seen complacency as as high as it is today, and when when you've seen uh, rallies that persist for as long as they have, and certainly this could keep going, um, what you see on the flip side of it is, is that correlations align very, very quickly. In other words, a lot of your risky asset classes start to behave in concert with one another, and there's no place to hide except for what you just mentioned, the gold and the silver and the, the precious uh, metals complex. So it's not so much that, that I'm, I'm worried about getting down in a bunker and the world ending, but I will say that the one asset class that tends to be completely separate and uncorrelated when financial markets correct is gold. So um, so how would you do that? Are you a believer in uh, physical gold or gold exchange traded funds or gold mining shares? What, how would you play that as a, as a kind of counterweight to what you think is coming? Well, I'm I'm not an avid gold investor. I don't I don't that that's not what I do to two from two to four a.m. every day. Um, but from everything that I have heard, owning physical gold can be a little difficult 
if you're not uh, a kind of a higher net worth individual who doesn't have liquidity constraints, in which case I think that there are better liquid uh, publicly traded vehicles, mining stocks would certainly be one avenue that you could pursue uh, in order to take advantage of that. What might be the catalyst for things changing from this current upward swell to turning down? I mean, it was really the housing market uh, and defaults in mortgage-backed securities that ultimately brought down Bear Stearns and then Lehman Brothers, which happened pretty quickly. What would be the catalyst that would start unraveling things uh, today? Well, well, even in the case of the great financial uh, crisis, the Fed was basic, was pretty much tightening right up until when things flipped like a switch. So if, if we are going to see the most monumental inventory rebuild in American history, which right now supplier delivery times suggest that we will, they suggest that we will see a blowout fourth quarter earnings. So if the Fed is going to tighten into temporary economic strength and over tighten us, I think that it is going to be a simple matter of an inversion of the yield curve and an over-tightening of financial conditions, especially if Mario Draghi follows through come January, and you truly have this great source of, of heroin that the markets have been addicted to for so long come out of the markets. People don't appreciate that, that the markets are at record levels because 2017 has, been, has, has had a record level of quantitative easing despite the Fed hiking rates this year when you get when you aggregate the sheer billions and billions of dollars that other central banks have been pouring into the markets if there's a double stop with the ecb and the fed at the same time and the fed is hiking i think that you could certainly see financial conditions rise to a certain uh, to a high enough extent that you put this debt-laden economy that we have on the skids and how about other major countries like japan which has been buying a huge amount of assets it has way more debt than we have. In fact, I think China has way more debt than we have because they've been kind of subsidizing their zombies and so on. What could happen in Japan and China uh, when it starts going the other way? So, so, so to me, Japan has always been an, an anomaly, economically speaking. It's largely been underpinned by the fact that most of its treasury market is owned domestically. So we've never seen the disruption that we might have otherwise seen. In fact, the household ownership in Japan of its equity market is somewhere in the range of 20, 30%, very low exposure to the Nikkei, if you will. China's a different story. Uh, you know, I, I worry about the, effectively their debt is 300% to GDP. These numbers are nosebleed numbers. We don't know really what the Chinese debt market looks like, nor is Xi Jinping going to invite us in for a look-see under the skirt. That's not happening anytime soon either what China does have is reserves. And so in the event of a disruption, I think that China can ensure that a disruption in their debt market is, can be contained. But there's no guarantee of that. But, but again, it's, 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 it's a huge debt market and we don't know really what the composition of it is because we've never been invited in. What black swans are you worried about that could come out of the blue and upset the whole apple cart sooner than what you're talking about? Well, I certainly think that geopolitics is something that we should always be aware of, but because China is now exerting itself on the world stage to the extent that it is, and because the timeline um, over which they want to become the world's largest economy is shortening quickly, 
And because of the inequality divide being wider than at any time and populism being higher than at any time since the years that ran up to World War One and World War II, I worry that there's enough tension going on and that there's been no release for this tension worldwide in a very long time that something could spill over to a developed economy, not just the regulars that we're used to seeing on the news as being you know, countries that are in, in turmoil. If so, We have about two minutes to go. In, in, if somebody read your book, Fed Up, about all of what was going on inside the Federal Reserve when you were there, what should they come away with, with their impression of you know, what's going to be happening with the economy in the future based on how the Fed's been handling things the last few years? Well, I think that they should anticipate more sclerosis in the economy, and that's very troubling. Again, the people who make policy at the Fed for a very long time have not been on the receiving end of their own policies. They've never had to make a payroll. They haven't had to deal with the fact that their parents aren't making any money on their savings. You need to walk away from the book with an understanding that 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 the Fed encourages you to to spend by uh, by borrowing, and that it's actually the opposite that creates lasting impact, a, a lasting impact on our economy. It is investment in the future. Save today, invest tomorrow, and teach your children financial literacy. And, and they, their policy has been the exact opposite: borrow today, and say earns nothing on your savings. Is what you're saying. Exactly. We're in an upside down world, according to, to me, upside down central bankers who have, they just have a very perverted, warped, academic, non-real world way of seeing how this economy should run. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Danielle DiMartino Booth. Her book is called Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. You can find out more about her and her book at demartinobooth.com. Thanks so much for being a very provocative guest on The Money Answer Show. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.